welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. Today we're going to talk about art and who funds it. You may think to yourself, why does this matter? That's good, because that's why we're going to talk about it, <laughs> is that it's an important thing that we sometimes don't think about. Now, often we think, yeah, I should pay or not pay, or Spotify allows me to stream for free or almost free, or... You know, money gets talked about in art pretty often in some ways, but as kind of a theoretical construct, as kind of a overall way of being, we don't think about how money and art interact that much unless, you know, you're sitting around in smoky French cafes or <laughs> in art school. So we're going to talk about that. We're interested in what art means when it's funded by various types of people and corporations. So the kickoff for this was a Financial Times article that uh, we'll post in the show notes that talked about the growing tension between large museums, and by large we mean like Smithsonian and the British equivalent, um, how large museums are funding their increasingly you know, unfunded by the national government shows with corporate money. And a lot of artists are upset about this because, you know, BP has a lot of corporate money to donate to art, but do you want BP giving you money? Some people think that's fine. Some people don't. So let's talk about it. Right. So one of the things that, you know, comes up, we've talked about music a lot with regard to funding streams, but what about other kinds of art? And this is where, you know, the museum situation starts to rear its head. But even for the arts more generally, once you get outside the realm of music, well, number one, it's just a lot less discussed. People don't think about paintings that much. They don't think about sculpture that much. And the main place... At least not in the same way that they think about iTunes right. on a daily basis. Right. It's just not Spotify. something that intersects their lives in the same way. Uh, mm -hmm. People tend to encounter art, and especially fine art, primarily in places like museums. and yeah, very circumscribed settings. Right. And that being said, though, the same tensions do apply in certain kinds of music, specifically the concert hall, where you're listening to classical music. Anytime you're dealing with art that is not extremely populist and therefore fairly straightforward to fund either on the existing sort of models that we see with music or crowdfunding or things like that, you're going to run into this tension of, well, where do you fund it if you think it is a genuine cultural good that you want to encourage and you want to continue seeing? One of the obvious sources is corporations who have you know, wealthy CEOs who like to sponsor the arts or who have just as a corporation, the view that sponsoring arts is going to be profitable in the public eye, is going to make them look good, it's going to have benefits because then wealthy donors will like them in turn, wealthy right. participants in the, the arts. Government. Right. The government can be involved in funding and often has. In the United States, we have the National Endowment for the Arts designed to uh, encourage, you know, funding, public funding, provide public funding for high art, and a lot of times municipal orchestras and things like that receive some degree of funding mm -hmm. through yep. their city. Yep. And of course, there's a great deal of debate, especially 
at a time when budgets of governments are very much under scrutiny as to whether governments should be in the business of funding the arts. But if governments aren't, and to be clear, I think those are very legitimate debates, but that's not where we're going today. Yep. Rather, if governments aren't going to fund it, who will and what are the costs of either governments funding it or corporations funding it or no one at that scale funding it and it having to come out of the pockets of individuals, etc.? Right. And so it's a very interesting tension because if you think about corporations as people, as some people would want you to do, they theoretically have an equal stake in enjoying and encouraging art. Um, so BP giving a bunch of money shouldn't be any different than um, one person giving a bunch of money in, again, the eyes of some people. Some people think that this is completely ridiculous and that corporations and art are antithetical, especially corporations that make their money off of things that the artists themselves disagree with, even if the gallery itself doesn't disagree with it. So artists may feel cheated if, you know, BP is sponsoring a gallery that they are being shown in because they don't like BP personally, but they can't really do anything about it except take their art out of the show, which is totally their prerogative because the museum needs BP's money to survive. <laughs> right. It's a complicated thing because BP and the museum both get benefits from this. BP looks like a good guy. Museum gets funding it wants. Some people, well, I guess, I guess the, that's a question, right? Is does BP look like a good guy and does the museum get what it wants? Is the intangible deficit of being associated with BP <laughs> worse than the tangible benefit of getting their money? Probably depends on whether it's before or after a ginormous spill in the middle of the ocean. Well, I mean... <laughs> You could you could say the same thing for Exxon. Yeah. I mean, in the 80s, they were awful, but no one thinks about the Exxon Valdez oil spill right. anymore. So, right. Proximity you know, to catastrophes we'll or BP. misbehavior involving a corporation probably have a great deal to do with it, at least in right. the public's perception. Right. But what I'm saying is that, like, so for, for me, you know, if I was going to get shown in a gallery, uh, any gallery, and BP was sponsoring it, you know, I can't really say that bp is is wrong in in sponsoring the arts right. i mean i can't really say that they shouldn't be allowed to sponsor <laughs> the arts right um you know i mean i would rather them have spending their massive amounts of money on art than on other things right um so it's hard for me as a pragmatic person to say, oh, yeah, we should discount all unethical or questionably ethical organizations from funding art because I feel like in short time, no, <laughs> no one one's funding art. <laughs> no one would be left. Right. Well, um, and I think that runs into one of the basic tensions in dealing with corporations. And we've talked about this before. I think we'll keep talking about it. Corporations are made up of people. Corporations are made up of large numbers of people oriented around certain goals those goals being the acquisition of power and money, mm -hmm. well, yep. those goals are not necessarily bad goals, but they do tend to have corrosive influences, and those corrosive influences have to be very carefully checked if you want to prevent them from corroding your company. And so right. the fear, and I think 
perhaps genuinely so, is that those corrosive influences, especially when you're dealing with a company that is known to behave in what some or many people consider unethical ways, then start to tarnish the art, start to bleed over. And the further consideration is, at what point does a concert hall or a museum or any other context like this that has a corporate sponsor become not only grateful to but indebted to and therefore beholden to that corporate sponsor at what point does a museum feel obliged not to show pieces of art that might not go over so well with bp or whomever else and we're using bp here because it's an example but you could pick apple you could pick you know, any large corporation that sees it in its own good interest to do this. Right, right. And I think that's an important thing to note because you're right. If somebody's giving you $10 million a year, you want to keep them giving you $10 yeah. million a year. <laughs> and maybe, you know, you are a little little more whatever willing to censor if we just drop the big bombs. Um, but... It, I don't know. It becomes a slippery subject for me because I'm never in a position where I want to make super controversial art. Mm -hmm. um, that's not necessarily the milieu that I work in. Right. Um, and so people who do want to make statements with their art, who want to have social impact and social change come about from their art, which is a totally valid and meaningful way that art exists in the world – they're going to have a much harsher take on, on that. Um, right. And I don't, I don't know where the line is on that because on some level you want your social change art to get out to as much, as, as much of an audience as possible, mm -hmm. as many people as possible. And if you stay in, you know, small galleries forever making this super edgy art, then you, you can't, achieve that particular end of your art now there are many other ends of art that you can achieve some of which just being purely aesthetically great like we're not getting down to purely utilitarian brass tacks here like there is an aspect of of art that is just pure aesthetic beauty that we should be seeking to achieve with any piece of mm -hmm. art whether it's interested in social change or not but i feel like if we if we're leaving aside that and just talking about whether or not you should boycott a gallery because it uh, doesn't have a funder that or has a funder that you don't like. Right. I think that's a challenging, challenging way to think about it. Some people might just say, well, it doesn't really matter because your art's going to get removed anyway, and then you'll have to boycott. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's always a fine line between, I want to make the the art that I really most entirely feel passionate about that may not have the widest social reach or art that has a wider social reach and still maintains my core values but isn't exactly the completeness of what I want to achieve. Right. Making art in general tends to run up against these tensions of – the artist's own desires and the consideration of the audience and the breadth of one's audience is going to be right. determined in part by the extent to which one is willing to engage at a more populist level. And I don't yep. use populist here in the sense of meaning kitsch. Something can be very broadly 
popular and appeal to a broad mass of people without being cheap, without being, you know, kind of just, again, kitschy is the best word I can think of yeah. for it. But... In in other words, we both love Taylor Swift. Yes, we, we do. <laughs> and I also <laughs> love listening to Bach. <laughs> uh, you yes. know, there's... You know, there's a sense in which when we produce art, we can either do that in a way that is deeply true to a distinctive and unique vision, even at the cost of audience accessibility, or we can do that in a way that is more accessible to an audience, but maybe less idealized. And both of those are valid artistic choices, but both mm -hmm. of them have consequences in terms of their pecuniary response which is to say how much money you're going to make from it if you make money from right. your art and right. their popular res response uh and that's especially true when you get into the funding issue which is a legitimate and ongoing concern for the artist how do you keep making art if someone's not willing to pay you to do it especially because making good art as we've as we've often talked about There's when we get to the arts on this show it takes time it, and money. It takes time and money, and it takes real dedication. Dang if you it, want to be a world-class songwriter, or you want to be a world-class <laughs> painter, or uh, you want to be a world-class pianist, or whatever. Actor or anything. It takes dedication. It takes hours and hours working at it day after day after day. It's not the sort of thing you can just do in your spare time. There are some things you can do in your spare time, but you're never going to be a Sir James Galloway, one of the greatest flautists in the world, as a hobbyist it's impossible yeah and that's true and so there's a sense in which we have to provide funding streams and structures for that but sometimes those funding streams and institutional structures can sit in tension with the artist's goals and exactly and this isn't less true of government involvement i mean we can and all think of yeah. uh even famous cases in america where the national endowment for the arts funded things that People of all sorts of different backgrounds found offensive. Some, you know, you've got mm -hmm. a, a wide variety of examples of that, and we can link some of those in the show notes. So this doesn't go away just because it's the government funding it. There's an inherent tension when some outside source is funding the exhibit of arts or funding the production of arts. Yep. But somebody has to fund it if you're going to do it. And so as an artist, you right. live with that tension. I think you also live with that tension as a consumer of the arts. Yeah, let me say one more thing about the, the artist tension before we jump Indeed. over there, is that the uh, difficulty of funding these large-scale arts often doesn't fall on the individual artist. Right. So, yes, there we've talked before about how individual songwriters and individual bands have difficulty getting paid, and I know all about that, but... <laughs> On some level, the individual artist boycotting BP has a completely different idea and a completely different structure, mm -hmm. and a completely different realization of of ethics than the museum has. Because the museum has many more things that it has to consider, many right. more audiences that it has to be beholden to, especially if you're talking about a government that's getting some funding from corporations and some funding from government and some from the audience there's a lot of concerns there. Mm -hmm. The same thing with a with a Philharmonic or with an opera or with a ballet troupe. One person boycotting as part of a troupe doesn't make any sense because right. the whole troupe has to exist together. Right. Now, 
I'm not taking anything away from that individual artist's prerogative or their ethics. It's just that if one person from a troop goes on strike, the understudy shows up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's just the reality yes. of the situation. So there are some things that individual artists like performance artists or visual artists, songwriters, things that can be done solo they don't have even the same concerns as arts that have to happen in a group right. setting, either small or large. Right. And the but, display of paintings or sculptures or things like that, even though it's the work of an individual, it tends to run into those same kinds of constraints because they tend to be displayed in contexts like museums where right. it is those large scale forces and those institutional forces that come into play. Right. But they can still boycott and remove their own art. Right. And then, you know, they've, They've made their statement and achieved their goal. They may not be getting paid, but their ethics remain unsullied. Right. Whereas people that are in these large group arts organizations, they have even less say mm-hmm. and play in the way that that works, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm feeling for you ballets. <laughs> now, for the consumer, we, we face some of the same concerns. Do I say well, this was funded by a company that uses child laborers in Asia. Not going to go to this museum. Or do I say, yeah, this was funded by that company, but that company is using its money well in this case, and I cannot control the behavior of every single company in the world. I'm going to go enjoy some good art and be glad that, well, at least they are funding good art. And yeah be glad of that good in the world yeah and that's where i come down on this pretty often is that there are corporations that are horrible and i sign protests petitions against them and i do my best to lobby against oppressive giant megalomaniacal (laughs) corporations that want to do takeovers of the entire internet but on the same scale you know if they decide to fund a museum here at the tune of five million dollars i'll probably still go to the thing because it's still going to be fun and interesting and have a bunch of art in it right and i'm still happy that you know those artists are getting paid right and in some sense i think that's where the danger i think that's exactly where the danger that we're talking about to open the episode comes in because okay maybe you feel and i'm using you here in the generic sense not you stephen caradini Uh, Maybe you have these considered opinions about how BP handles its environmental record or how Google handles user privacy or whatever else. But then they're funding things that you like and that you think are culturally important, and they give you warm fuzzies about that. Are they in some sense buying you off? And I think that's where the the genuine concern, both as producer and as consumer of the art, comes up Mm -hmm. when you're interacting with this corporation. Are -hmm. they just buying me off? Right. And if you refuse to be bought, but you still go to the art gallery, I think you're doing okay. (laughs) I will take advantage of your money and not be bought. (laughs) Right. If you still sign that petition the next day, and if you still say Google is a terrible data-sucking monster (laughs) that also funded this nice thing, I think you can still be in tension with yourself but i think you can still be ethically unsullied yes um, well and there's the... some people who would say that you you can't that you can't hold these two competing ideas either google is evil or google is not evil but i just don't think that's 
the reality of living in the world. No, and I think one of the things we have to remember is that Supreme Court statements notwithstanding, corporations are not individual people. Uh, right. So, sometimes, you know, and I'm not getting into an argument about what the Supreme Court is trying to do in all these various cases. There are some legitimate arguments to be made for why they're doing some of the things they're doing there. My point— and some legitimate reasons to hate <laughs> their guts. Uh, but when we look at Google, when we look at BP, we have to remember that they're not monolithic structures. They're not all good or all evil any more than any individual is, but multiplied many, many fold and, right. you know, magnified many fold because you've right. got competing tensions between competing people within those companies. Maybe you have the people in the company who love the arts and are magnanimous and generous and the people in the company who want to steal the souls of every person they come in contact with to power their evil machine of death. Okay, that was probably wow. a little hyperbolic, but... <laughs> Wow, that's the harshest thing that's ever been said on Winning Slowly. Also the most hyperbolic. Soul-crushing and evil machines of death. Soul-crushing evil machines of death. Uh, You know, magnanimous art donors, soul-crushing machines of death lovers. (laughs) Maybe they exist in the same corporations. That's the tension we live with. Theoretically possible. Yep. And so I think that's what we have to deal with as we, you know, determine what we what we fund, what we attend, who we, um, you know, work with if we're artists. Oh, and and that's that's a really interesting and important point. There's a very big difference, I think, between letting your art be displayed in a museum that, among others, is sponsored by some corporation you don't like and taking that corporation's money directly yourself. There is something about that disintermediation that does make a difference. But uh, things like OK Go taking direct sponsorship from everyone under the sun, Mm -hmm. like Chevy, State Farm, all these, that's the sort of thing where if OK Go is being funded directly by BP, that would make me feel icky about, you know, supporting OK Go, right? Because that's direct intervention that, you know, we don't know what's going on there, really. Um, and OK Go is a pretty easy example because they sing breakup songs. So it's not like, (laughs) it's not like they're trying to get much social change going on except like an actual working relationship. But, um, please don't break up with me. Please don't break up with me. Um, yeah. So it's, but they have a direct relationship with people who sponsor their music videos. And sometimes they make incredibly ridiculously awesome (laughs) music videos out of it, like the, uh, needing getting music video with the Chevy car and the augmented pianos. And it was, it was just awesome, you know, but you have to consider that this is essentially an ad for Chevrolet now, right now. Is it an interesting and exciting and worthwhile ad for Chevrolet? I think so. Right. Does it make me any more likely to buy a Chevrolet? Not particularly. <laughs> Does it make me feel like Chevrolet is a good guy that funded a absurd. Okay. Go video <laughs> kind of does. Right. And it does. Right. And so that's where the tension for the artist as direct consumer sits. Is I, I do think you have to evaluate who your sponsors are. But that is also true, you know, even when you're dealing with an individual. If Machiavelli mm-hmm. wants to sponsor you, do you say yes? Well, you probably do so that you can stay alive because Machiavelli being Machiavelli, he might just kill you otherwise. But Also, you're probably back in the past for some reason. <laughs> so you're reason, probably okay today. 
Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if Machiavelli wants to sponsor you, you have to take take some thought at least right. to figure out why why you would want this to happen because it's gonna it's gonna have some consequences. Yeah. Now I was I was hearing a, a bit on a different podcast about a filmmaker in Germany back in the thirties, nineteen thirties, and he well, obviously nineteen thirties. <laughs> there weren't filmmakers in the eighteen thirties and we're not in the twenties. We're actually sending yet. this from the future, guys. <laughs> sending it from the future. Uh but no, he he was a brilliant filmmaker, and his film was taken very well by everybody. And Hitler and Goebbels called him in and said, we love this. We want you to work for us. And he says, well, I'm going to have to think really hard about it. And he gets on a train and leaves the country immediately because he doesn't want to be a Nazi stooge. Well, obviously, yeah. for your average artist, the question isn't be a Nazi stooge or not. Gladly. Gladly. But there is a sense in which sometimes you're looking at this and thinking, am I making a Faustian bargain here? Is this a deal with the devil? Am I going to steal the soul of my art for a little money? Or for even a, where it gets really tempting, for a ton of money? Uh, <laughs> is, this a, is this a corporation with which I'm willing to do business? And that's immediately necessary as a concern when they're funding you directly. It's, right. it's still something of a concern. If they're the sponsor that's keeping the uh, New York museum of art open maybe i want to think harder about whether i let my art be sponsored there if yeah. they're one of many many funders eh, i'm probably not too worried about it if yeah yeah and i mean at some level this becomes a topic not about art but just about how you deal ethically with other people and other organizations yeah. right like there's always going to be trade-offs when you work with or for particular people. I would never work for Google. I don't think you would either. Even if, you know, I, as a employee of North Carolina State University, have to use Gmail because we use Google Suite. So, you know, just because I use Google Suite for my university mail doesn't mean that I'm immediately going to take any opportunity to work with Google that I can. Right. So that's the disintermediation of of being a normal person is that there's there's these levels of integration and interaction mm-hmm. that we work with on a daily basis. Right. There are levels of ethical responsibility depending on the degree of one's uh, direct culpability for something, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And so there's definitely an aspect where, sure, Google is not directly involved in my life and that they're not paying me a salary, but they are part of my daily working experience. And so if Google suddenly does something that's completely unethical, I can say, yes, I'm a Google user and I am offended by this and mm-hmm. you should change. So there, there are levels. And I think that's an important thing to consider even as a non-artist consumer, because I know that there are you know, people on our listeners who aren't particularly interested in the ethical conundrums of art, <laughs> but you are a person, almost certainly, unless <laughs> unless you you're a robot, a sentient, yeah, a robot or a sentient animal. As we wrap up here, we just want to emphasize that when we're dealing with art and who funds art, it's not necessarily a one size fits all solution. Right. I mean, I think after two seasons of Winning Slowly, we should know that nothing is a one size fits all solution. But this, even more so than some. You've got to be aware of what the nature of the involvement is, what the nature of the disintermediation is, what the nature of the 
you as a person being um, influenced by this is. There's just so many variables here. And so we just want people to think about artists and non-artists. Think about where money comes from and what that means. Right. And I have to correct myself and laugh at myself because I was all proud of using disintermediation, but it's the wrong word. I actually mean mediation <laughs> uh, because we're actually talking about the question of someone being in between rather than taking away what's in between. So good job, me. There you go. Thanks for listening to episode 1.14 of Winning Slowly. All of our content is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. You can do whatever you like with it. Just say you got it from us. The music at the beginning of the show is not ours. Don't use it without asking permission. Check out all of their music on their Bandcamp. You can, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app, and you can follow us on Twitter, app.net, Facebook, or Ello. Until next time, I've been Chris Kreitcho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening. The doctor traveled back and brought him back in a time machine. Why he would do that, we don't know. But time travel Bet with the doctor. <laughs> do we have dolphins? But, do we have dolphins but, listening or, or, to winning slowly? <laughs> so we've got some great bloopers today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Dolphin oh my gosh. noises are definitely getting cut, but definitely going in the bloopers. <laughs> <laughs>